0: Our scripture this morning is from the book of Matthew. It is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. Again, that's Matthew 16, 13 through 38. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray.
1: Lord Jesus, we are in awe of you and all that you've done all that you've said, all that you've taught, all that you are. And I pray now again, Father, one more time. I pray that you would come now and remove the veil and allow us to see you for who you are. You are the Savior of the world. You are the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to God but through you. You are the God-man who made atonement for our sins and who overcame death and who ascended from this earth and who sits at the right hand of the throne of God and who rules all the nations, both now and forevermore. You are the Lord. You are the God. You are the creator. So now I ask you, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, to come and make these things live for us. Oh, how we love you, our living Savior, our living friend, our living Redeemer. And it's in you that we put our hope. Amen. Well, by any measure, Jesus Christ was a great man. And everybody who knew him knew that to be true. Nobody denied that in his day. Even people that only knew Jesus Christ by reputation and hadn't actually met him face-to-face, acknowledged that he was no normal guy, that he was something very special, that he was not just another teacher from another city in northern Israel. People knew that he was great. And Jesus gave them plenty of reasons to think this way about him. Let me just list a few things off. First of all, he inspired men who had lives and careers to drop everything that they had and everything that they did and everything that their lives were about and follow him day by day by day from one place to another. It's something we take for granted, but think about it. People dropped their careers. People left their families. And in that culture, if your father was a fisherman, you were a fisherman. So to leave the family business was to forsake a lot. People just dropped everything to follow this guy. Why? Because they knew he was great. They could see it. They could feel it. They could hear it. They could almost taste it. They could touch it. They knew that he was a great man. Jesus, when he began his public ministry, he taught with an unusual authority, with an unusual kind of power. And when people heard him, they would say things about that. They would say, wow, I mean, this guy is teaching in a way that we've never heard. He's not like the people in power that we've heard before, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the educated ones. He doesn't talk like them. When he speaks, there's an authority, there's a, a reality, there's a power there. There's something different. There's something unusual about this guy. People would sometimes say, where does he get this teaching from? I don't think they always meant the content. I think sometimes they meant the presence with which he taught. You've heard this before, haven't you, where one teacher will teach a thing And then another teacher teaches the same thing, but somehow with the second person, it just lives. The teaching is just alive. There's something real to it. There's something powerful about it. And Jesus was like that second person to the nth degree. He had a a tremendous authority. And even people who disagreed with him could not uh, reject the idea that there was something unusual about this guy. He also had great compassion on sinners, but he was not afraid to speak the plain truth to people. This is something I love about Jesus Christ. He was not afraid to confront people with their sins, and he did that in compassion, but he did it. And people knew that he was an authentic teacher of God when they saw him not playing games with them so that he could grow a bigger and bigger and bigger crowd, but he told them the truth in love, and they loved him for it. It increased their sense of his authority when he rebuked them in love. Now, obviously, those in power didn't like being rebuked by this guy too much. But the common people saw this as a great uh, thing about his authority in their lives. Beyond that, he also had great compassion on their daily needs. Everywhere he went, he healed diseases. And he set people free from a variety of chains that bound them, physical chains, Emotional chains, spiritual chains, family types of chains. He was a a freer of people and people knew that wherever he went, healing happens. Healing happened. They had never seen a man like this before. This guy, he didn't do this in front of the public. He wasn't so much about uh, putting on a big show to impress people, but with his disciples at one time, he actually even commanded wind and waves and they obeyed him. Can you imagine that? The other day, I was riding my bicycle in the southeasterly direction, and I know that because the wind was blowing straight in my face, so I know exactly which direction I was going. And I'm telling you, when you're riding a bike into a 15, 20-mile-an-hour wind, you feel it. Isn't that right, Steve? Steve's a cyclist. He knows you really feel that. I would have loved to say to the wind, hey, give me a break. Stop. I want you to stop, just stop, wind, and all of a sudden the wind stops. I can't imagine having the power to do that, but Christ had the power to do that. Some people saw it, and they knew, obviously, he had a very unusual authority. Many more people saw him exercise power over evil spirits. People who were perplexed by by evil things, and you know, in my life, this this seems so real to me because before I was in Christ, I was in the drug world, and I knew many people who were into Satanism and all this stuff, and I saw evil at work. When I came to Christ, it was, and I read the Bible, it was not hard for me to believe in demons because I saw these things working in people's lives. Well, whenever Jesus came around, demons fled. They fled. And when he commanded them, they left. They obeyed. They did whatever he told them to do. The people saw that. This is unusual. Others had taught them about demons. Jesus had power over demons. So he had an authority that the people knew was very great and very unusual. Another thing about him is he attracted great crowds everywhere that he went. Wherever he taught, from city to city to city, people would come out from everywhere to see him. But the thing is, he was not impressed with the crowds, and, and that's very impressive to me. Jesus was not intoxicated by power, by numbers, by money, by prestige, by all the stuff that comes from fame. It, it like didn't even touch him. Have you ever known a person, really? Really? that is totally unintoxicated by these kinds of things, where thousands upon thousands of people are coming to him and following him, and, and he seems to be aloof from it. He's not, he's not lured in by it. He's not touched by it in that, in, that, in that sort of sinful sense of the word. He had control of himself. He had power over all things. Beloved, Jesus Christ was no normal man. He was not a normal man. And everybody in his life, whether they believed in him or not, knew this to be true. They did not agree about who he was. They did not agree about whether he was good or bad. But everybody agreed, this is no normal man. He is somebody to be reckoned with. He's somebody that when you encounter him, you can't just forget that you've encountered him. You can't just go on unchanged. You actually have to make a decision about Jesus. I've met famous people before. My parents, just because they were in the music industry in Southern California, knew people. And over the years, I've had the privilege of meeting famous people. But I've rarely met a person that when I met them, I felt like I cannot stay the same anymore. Now that I've met that person, I have to make a decision about my life. Well, Jesus Christ was like that. If you met him, you knew you could never be the same. Love him or hate him, accept him or reject him, you must make a decision about this man. He was and is a very, very great man, not just some teacher, not just some guy from a town in northern Israel. It had been a long three days for Jesus and his closest followers. He had led them to a place north of Jerusalem. You can see it on a map if you look there to this day. It's still called the Sea of Galilee. And there when he gathered, uh, large crowds had gathered around him. You'll see this in Matthew 15, verse 30. And they brought to him people who were lame and blind and deaf and had all kinds of ailments. And Jesus, in great compassion and as a Savior, began to heal people one after another after another. And the people were in total awe of him. I mean, just think of how you would feel if you brought someone who was blind to Jesus and he prayed over them and now they could see. Or you brought a friend who was deaf and he prayed over them and now they could hear. Or they were in a wheelchair and he prayed over them and now they could walk. Well, this is what was happening. Jesus, not to put on a show, but in compassion for people, was healing folks left and right. And the folks were giving glory to God. You can see chapter 15, verse 31. It says that the people of Israel saw the works of God in Jesus and gave glory to God. It was a a wonderful time, a time of celebration. But instead of celebrating, what happened was that some of the religious leaders of the day came from Jerusalem, probably, out to where Jesus was, and they confronted him. They were testing him. They were trying to trap him. You see, they knew that he was a great man. Everybody knew he was a great man, but the religious leaders felt threatened by this guy. They felt like he was drawing the heart of the people away from them, and they were jealous and so they wanted to stop him at any cost. So they came out there to trap him in his words and hopefully even find a cause in him that they could put him in prison and maybe even put him to death. That's how serious they were. We, we find from other texts in the scripture that their plots to kill Jesus have been going on for a long time. They felt that threatened by this guy. They really did. But Jesus was wise to them. And praise be to God, he evaded all of their traps and he put his disciples in a boat and he, and he went across the Sea of Galilee. And when they got to the other side, they took a journey from there up to a resort kind of area called Caesarea Philippi. So there was a city there, but it was kind of out of the way. It was a place that people would go to retreat, to get away from the crowds. It was a 25-mile walk from the shore of the Sea of Galilee up to Caesarea Philippi, and it was a 1,700-foot climb. So, so just get the picture. They're walking together for 25 miles up a long, long mountain, and, and then they get up into this northern area. It used to be the tribe of Dan, for those of you who know the Old Testament. It's in that same area, and they're way up on top of a mountain in a retreat setting. And now Jesus uses this as an occasion to ask his disciples an incredibly important question and you'll see this in in chapter 16 verse 13 he said disciples embellishing a little bit here you you and I we've been to a lot of places we've seen a lot of people we've done a lot of ministry we've seen God do amazing things we've seen him pour out grace and mercy and resources and power and now I want to ask you a question what are the folks saying about me Who do people say that I am? You've been mixing with thousands and thousands of people, one town after another. So, who are people saying that I, the Son of Man, am? The disciples answered with a variety of answers because there were a variety of opinions about Jesus. Some people thought that he was this guy called John the Baptist. John the Baptist was another prophet in Jesus' day, born six months or so before him. And he also was a great man of God, the kind that people had to reckon with and could not ignore. But John, in obedience to God, had confronted a great man, Herod, who was the governor of that region. And Herod, being in power, did not take kindly to what John said. And to make a long story short, he ended up having John's head cut off. When Jesus' ministry took off and his fame started to grow, Herod uh, felt shocked and trapped, and he began to think, oh no, John the Baptist, this guy who had come after me, and was, was wanting me to repent from my sins, and has, was prophesying against me in public, this guy's come back from the dead. He's come back to get me. So he was afraid that somehow or other, God put John's head back on, John was living again, and now going by the name Jesus. Some people were actually persuaded by, per, by Herod's point of view, and they thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. Other people said, no, no, that's not it. Jesus is Elijah. Now, Elijah was a prophet, another prophet from the Old Testament times, but way, way back before Jesus. And indeed, there were prophecies, and there are prophecies in the Bible that say that Elijah must first come into the earth and appear on this earth before the Messiah comes, the great Deliverer, the Christ comes. So Elijah was a great prophet who was said to be coming again, and some people thought that Jesus was was him. Others said, no, he's Jeremiah, or he's Isaiah, or he's one of the other prophets. He, he's not Elijah, he's not John the Baptist, but he is a prophet. He, he's a great man, and somehow he is in, incarnated or reincarnated the spirit of one of these prophets. So you can see that there were a variety of opinions among the people, just as there are in our day, about who Jesus Christ really is. But what I want us to notice is this. Everybody's opinion with, of Jesus was very, very high, They were not identifying him with a teacher of a local synagogue or something like that. They were identifying Jesus with the greatest men in the history of Israel. Prophets of God who had an unusual spirit and power upon them. And when they spoke, everybody knew God was speaking. They exalted Jesus to that high, high level and said, This man is a man that's unusual, not like anyone we've seen in 400 years. Indeed, Israel had not seen a prophet since Malachi 400 years had passed. Now the people were seeing that Jesus was a great, great, great man and putting him in that category. That's the most important thing for us to see. Folks did not agree about who Jesus was, but they all agreed about this. This is a great man who has to be reckoned with. He has to be dealt with. You have to make a decision about this man. Now, as for Jesus' interaction with his disciples. I actually think he asked this question of them not so much to get their answers because I think he probably knew what people were saying about him. He had been around the crowds and he had a prayer life. And I know from being a man of prayer that when you pray, God speaks to you. And I'm, and I'm sure that the Father had already informed Jesus about who people thought he was. Jesus probably had a lot more knowledge about that than the disciples. So I think he was asking them the question to get their minds stirring, to get their hearts stirring. Because the next thing he did was he turned the question now on them. So he's trying to get them to think so that the soil is tilled and now he asks the question, okay, disciples, now what about you? What do you think about me? You've been walking with me for a long time now. Others have heard me by the hearing of the ear but you've seen it with your eye. You've walked with me. You've watched me heal people And you've watched me be in a vulnerable place, like every night when I go to sleep and I'm totally vulnerable. So you've watched me exercise power, you've watched me be vulnerable. You've watched me feed the crowds by miracles, and you've watched me be hungry. You've watched me still storms, and you've seen the rain fall upon my face. You've walked with me day by day by day by day. You've heard me teach, and you've been taught by me. You've seen me in a way that no one else has seen me, so you who are close to me, what do you think about me? Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And for any avid reader of the Bible, it won't surprise you to know who stood up to speak, right? It's Peter. Peter's always the one that says, I know, I know, I know. He's always the one blurting out with something. So he stood up and, and he spoke, but he spoke by the Spirit of God and not by his flesh when he said, you are the Christ the son of the living god or if i can if i can embellish peter's words a little bit to help us understand the depth of what peter was saying he was saying something like this jesus said people are are saying you're a prophet a great man but i'm saying that you're greater than the prophets the prophets were pointing towards somebody beyond themselves and you are that person beyond themselves that they were pointing to you're not just so great as a prophet you're greater than the prophets You're not just one who prophesies, you're the one about whom they prophesy. You're not just the prediction, you're the fulfillment. You are the Christ. You are the one who God has anointed to come into the world and be a deliverer from sin for everyone who believes. That's you. You call yourself the Son of Man, Jesus, because you were born of human beings. You identify yourselves with you. But I, Peter, I'm saying that you also are the Son of God. You are born of God. You are in the God family. You are like God. You are the Son of God and the Son of Man. The Christ, the Son of the living God. That was a a true answer. And that was a deep answer, a profound answer. Jesus saw immediately that Peter had answered in a profound way, not a superficial way. And he knew that Peter didn't come up with this on his own. This was not a matter of Peter working out a logical solution to a problem or or coming up with a sensible answer to a question. This was a matter of of the great spirit, the creator of heaven and earth, God the Father, revealing to Peter, opening his eyes about who the reality of Jesus Christ is. And that's the way it works. Oh, people have lots of opinions about Jesus but for some, God unveils their eyes and they see the glory of the risen Christ. That's what happened to Peter and Jesus knew it. And so Jesus blessed Peter and he praised God. And you can see there are these famous words that Jesus spoke over Peter. He said, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, which in Greek is the word petra. So he's playing on Peter's word. You are Peter and on this petra, this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter, Jesus was granting Peter authority in the life of the church. He was doing that. The Catholics take this too far, but we might pull back too far. Because if you look at the history of the early church, you'll see that Peter rose up to be the key leader in the early church through the book of Acts. And then later, he was identified as a pillar of the church along with several others. He was given unusual authority in the life of the church. But the main thing Jesus is saying here is not about Peter. The main thing he's saying is that I will build my church on the revelatory knowledge of who I am. In other words, I am going to build my church with everyone who is granted the privilege of the veil being removed from their eyes so that they can see the beauty and glory of who I, the Son of Man, am. When my Father reveals to people who I am, they will become the church. We believe in membership at this church, but the only people who can become members of this church are people who believe in Jesus Christ because we're not a social club. We're not the Lions Club, the YMCA. That's not us. We are the living church of the living God. Living stones built into a living temple whose head is Jesus Christ, our living, resurrected Redeemer, our Savior, our friend. And the church, therefore, is made up of those who live in Christ and everybody who lives in Christ will indeed live forever and ever. Beloved, this is what is meant by you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a profound answer. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Deliverer, the only Savior of this world. Jesus himself said in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to God the Father but by me. And in a little bit we'll see why that is. The disciples were thrilled to know more about who Jesus was. They really were. They had given up so much. They had walked with him for so long. They had very high hopes. And in a Jewish mindset, you could not get better news than that your teacher was the Messiah. There is no better news on the earth for a Jew than that. The guy you chose to follow, that's the guy. He's the one Moses wrote about. He's the one Isaiah wrote about. He's the one Daniel wrote about. There he is right there. He's our teacher. They're thrilled. But Jesus told them, put, put, a, put a seal on your lips. Don't talk to people about this right now. I don't want you to go spread abroad the news because it wasn't time yet. The time would come to spread this message, but the time was not quite yet. Instead, what Jesus decided to do was to shape their minds around what it meant to be the Christ. They had lots of conceptions around what it meant for him to be the Christ. Some of them were right, some of them were very wrong. And so he wanted to take the Bible, and he wanted to shape their minds with regard to who he was, and that's exactly what he did. You'll see there in chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I take this word began, Jesus began to teach. I take this to mean that that this was a process. I I don't think it would be right to get the idea that Jesus just sat around a campfire with these guys on one particular night and told them these things about himself. Rather, I think the idea is that from that time forward, day by day, he began to teach them about what it really meant to be the Christ. And then it, it says that he showed these things to them. He began to show them. Not to tell them, but to show them. So that seems to me to imply some kind of source. And we know what that source was. He took what we call the Old Testament, the first 39 books of our Bible, and he began to show them. He was showing them. So he was doing a Bible study with them. That's what I believe. I I, I know that it doesn't say that in these words, but it is what I believe. In Luke chapter 24, we see of a time when Jesus is walking down the road with a couple of his disciples. Would have been the Bible study in the history of the world that I would have loved to be at. Because Jesus, it says... Went from the beginning of the Bible to the end of his Bible, the Old Testament, from Moses to Malachi, and he showed all the places where it prophesied about him. He showed them. He saw himself all over the Bible. He's really there and he saw himself there so he taught these couple of disciples those things. I believe at this time he did essentially the same thing with all of his disciples. They were Jewish, they had grown up in synagogue, they heard the scripture. Now he needed to help them hear what they had heard. He needed to help them see what they had seen. He needed to to shape their minds by the word of God about what it meant to be the Christ because certainly, like people in their day, they had a lot of misconceptions about what it actually meant to to be the Christ. And so he told them, listen, here's what the deal is. I'm gonna have to go to Jerusalem and suffer a lot. And then when I'm done suffering, they're actually gonna kill me. But don't worry, after they kill me in three days, I'm gonna be raised again from the dead. Now, as this teaching progressed, you might imagine that it didn't please the disciples real well. They didn't didn't take this really well. And and if we just think about it for a second, I think we could put ourselves in their shoes. Imagine that a, a great person shows up in Elk River and starts some ministry. He's a true man of God, a true man of God. Not just a charismatic deceiver, but a true man of God. And everybody in this area knows it. This guy's unusual. He's not just like an everyday pastor that we've all seen. Something is unusual about this guy. I remember in in seminary, I took three courses in which we studied the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And I remember reading of person after person who would say things about him when he was young. They would say, that's gonna be a great man right there. Or one guy, so this phrase has always stuck in my mind. He said, Martin is gonna be a giant of a man. Even when Martin was a teenager, people saw him. They knew there was something unusual about him. That's the kind of guy I'm talking about. An unusual person comes into the area, and we know God's up to something, so some of us begin to follow him. And then after time, he says, Hey, you know, i got to tell you what's going to happen here is got to go down to downtown Minneapolis pretty soon, and i got to hand myself over to the authorities, and they're going to make me suffer lots of stuff, and they're actually going to sentence me to the gas chamber, and they're going to put me to death. Don't worry about it. On the third day, I'm going to come back from death. How how would you feel about that? Would you be excited to keep following this guy? Would you think he was a little crazy? The disciples probably believed in the idea of resurrection in a general sense, but I don't think they tracked at all with a guy that they actually knew who would die and in just a few days rise back again from the dead. I don't think it landed upon them, and so they weren't real happy about this. And again, Peter is the one to stand up and say something. Not to embarrass Jesus, he draws him aside and Peter actually rebukes Jesus. Can you imagine that? Jesus created Peter. (laughs) Jesus called Peter to follow him and now Peter is rebuking Jesus. It's amazing. Jesus knew that he was not speaking on his own here either and so he actually rebuked not Peter but Satan. Don't get the idea. It says Jesus said to Peter, that's true. In other words, he looked in his direction. But don't get the idea that Jesus was calling Peter Satan because that's not what was happening. Jesus was seeing behind Peter's words the true source of his words. He was seeing Satan. It was just like the temptations out in the desert that Jesus underwent. Satan was one more time trying to lure Jesus away from his destiny on the cross. He's trying to get Jesus to choose his comfort over the the tragedy, the suffering, the difficulty of the cross. And, And what Peter said to Jesus was, listen, man, you got to stop talking like this. You, you have to stop teaching what you're teaching right now. This is never going to happen to you. Can you imagine? Peter actually said that to Jesus. This will not happen to you like he was God. You're a great man. You're the son of man. You're the son of God. You're not some peasant. You're not some weak person. You speak and the winds and the waves obey. So what are you talking about that you're going to have to hand yourself over to authority so that they're going to kill you? Stop talking like this. And that's why Jesus said, Satan, get away from me and get away from me now because I am fully, fully, fully submitted to the will of God in my life. Praise be to God that that was Jesus' attitude. No matter what his disciples' protestations and no matter what the devil's temptations Christ kept pressing and pressing on his disciples by the Scripture, showing them all the things that the Christ must, in the strongest sense of that word, that he must suffer. Specifically in this text, he pointed out five things. Let me quickly list them for you. He said, one, he had to go to Jerusalem, the center of power, and that city of the Jews that was founded for them by their king David. Number two, he had to be rejected by his own people, the Jews, Number three, he had to suffer many things at the hands of the Jewish leaders, including betrayal, false accusations, scourgings, beatings, mockings, and the like. Number four, he had to be killed. Notice he uses the word killed. Just like in English, Greek had a a word that they could use to say, I have to die, but they didn't use the word die. They said, I had to be killed. Jesus had to be slaughtered. He had to be sacrificed. He had to be. Number five, on the third day, he had to be raised again from the dead by the power of God the Father. The Lord was trying to show his disciples these things in the scripture because all of these things were written of him. This was Jesus' destiny that was handcrafted for him by God Almighty from before the foundation of the world. These were not events that were transpiring in his time as though they were unseen and unknown and unplanned and out of the control of God or even out of the control of Jesus. These things had been destined from before the foundation of the world. And for Jesus, it was essential for his disciples to at least try to begin understanding what it was that God's plan was because they were gonna have to go through some things with him. So this is why I believe Jesus started this whole conversation. He was trying to get to this point. He was trying to help them understand what was really going on with them following him. So if I can summarize the conversation with three questions. First of all, who do you say that I am? Answer, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one of the living God, the Messiah, the deliverer of this world. Number two question, what does it mean to be the Christ? Well, for now, it means that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised again from the dead. That's what it means. It means suffering. Victory in the end, but suffering for now. Third question Why does the Christ have to suffer these things? Answer Because it is written because these things have been predestined for him, because this has been predetermined from before the foundation of the world, because this is the will of Almighty God to crush him, as we'll see here in a moment. So what I would like to do for the rest of this morning is briefly address one more quick question, namely, where are these things written? Where are they written? Next week we're going to come back and deal with verses 24 through 28. We're going to talk about the implications of Jesus' words for our lives because there are very serious implications for how we ought to live if we believe in Jesus Christ. Just like the disciples, we have lots of misconceptions about what it means to be a Christian. And we love our middle-class American life, but Jesus Christ is going to say to us, if you want to be serious about following me, you've got to take up your cross and follow after me. You have to come in the way of suffering if you want to know the way of resurrection. And we'll talk about that and why that's a good thing next week. But for now, I want to talk just very briefly about the where of this. And I'm only going to to be able to do it briefly because I was thinking through it earlier this week. And, And in truth, if I took you to every place where there were prophecies about the origin and the birth and the life and the suffering and the death and burial and resurrection and ascension and eternal reign of Christ, it would take at least one year of sermons to do that. And I mean that. I only get 40 minutes a Sunday. It would take me a year, so I can't do that. So I want to take you to just one place this Sunday. Let's go to Isaiah 52. If you have a Bible with you, Isaiah 52, verse 13. If you do not have a Bible with you, In your bulletins, I printed this out there for you so that you could have it and see it and marvel at the amazing wisdom of God in in history. The words we're about to read were written about 700, 750 years before Jesus Christ walked this earth. And that's a proven fact. Even secular scholars acknowledge that Isaiah wrote many hundreds of years before Christ ever lived and walked this earth. When you compare these words to the life of Christ, it's stunning. It's breathtaking. How could this not be God speaking about the life of Jesus Christ? 52.13 Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So I'm going to pause, by the way, quite often here to say some things. Right there in that verse, you have to see, the reason Jesus was great in people's eyes is because God made him great. It was the plan for him to be high and exalted and lifted up. Now, let's look and see what exalted looks like in the mind of God. It doesn't look like what we think. 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of men. I believe, beloved, that this is talking about the state of Christ when he was hanging on the cross You know, we see all these pictures. The other night we had the Stations of the Cross in here. It was really a a lovely service that we had, a powerful service that we had. And I don't put blame on whoever put these pictures up because these are really the only kinds of pictures that you can find. But on those pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross, he looks so beautiful. It looks so artistic. He's sitting there suffering so clean with maybe a little blood dripping down his face. But beloved, it was nothing like that. You would not want to look at a picture of what Jesus actually looked like on the cross. Some of you enjoy looking at gross stuff. Most of us would look away. You would not even want to look. He was beat beyond recognition. They punched him. They slapped him. They ripped out his beard. His face would have been swollen and bloody. They stuck crown of thorns on his head so blood was streaming down his face. They flogged him with the scourge that would have ripped his flesh apart. He literally would have just looked a mess, like a piece of meat hanging on a cross. It would have been disgusting, beyond recognition. Isaiah wrote of it seven centuries before it happened. So, in this way, verse 15, He shall sprinkle many nations, with His blood that is. Kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. They'll be humbled at the sight of Him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. And In other words, they will one day hear the good news of Jesus Christ and all that God has been doing to work out salvation for the nations of the world. They will hear the message. Chapter 53, who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom... Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, there it is. The way people come to believe is the the arm of the Lord is revealed to them, just like Peter, just like me, just like my friends Robert and Mike, who came to Christ recently. The the, the Lord revealed these things to them, praise be to God. That's how it works. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a, a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, he wasn't good-looking and charismatic. That's not what gave him his power. Rather, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This isn't looking like the kind of exaltation we normally imagine, but it is the will of God. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. In other words, people looked at Christ and figured that he was suffering because of things he had done. And maybe he wouldn't confess it, but somehow there was some secret sin in his life, and God was striking him, punishing him for what he had done. Isaiah is saying, no, 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 no. He's innocence. He's being struck for what? we have done. That's what's really happening here. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that belonged to us and that brought us peace. And with his stripes, which I take to mean his flogging, with his stripes we are healed. I wonder If you've ever experienced healing in your life from Christ, I was thinking about this this week. At a spiritual level, at an emotional level, even at a physical level, I've, I've experienced healing from Christ. I remember once having a pretty serious ear problem. And one day we were driving down the road and Kim never said a word to me. She just reached over and put her hand on my ear and silently prayed. And the pain in my ear went away and it's never come back to this day. Jesus did that. I've received healing from Christ in a number of ways. I bet you many of you have too. He bought that for you through his flogging, beloved. By his stripes, we are healed. Isaiah wrote to us seven centuries before it happened. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord God the Father has laid upon Jesus the sin, the iniquity, the rebellion of us all. That's what was happening to him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that keeps silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. And you know that happened. At his trial, they accused and accused and accused, and he felt no need to defend, but he kept silent. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. I take that to mean through betrayal, he was arrested. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? In other words, that he died because he was stricken for the transgression of my people. So even his closest followers, beloved, they saw the suffering. They knew he died, but did they put one and one together? Did they see that he was dying as the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for the sins of the world? Isaiah saw it 700 years before he saw it. And now the burial, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And that's true too. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. And the day when Jesus was hanging on a piece of wood, not a lot different than that one right there. After he had died, Joseph of Arimathea came and said, please let me take the man off the cross. I have a tomb. I'll put him in there. And he did just that. Isaiah's words were fulfilled in the life of that man. And yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Neither the Jews nor the Gentiles put Jesus to death. Ultimately, ultimately, it was God the Father. He has put him to grief. And now we get to resurrection. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. If you know the Bible... This phrase, prolong his days, always implies life on this earth. So right there in Isaiah's words, I see a prophecy of the resurrection of Christ. Yes, he's been stricken. Yes, he has died. And yes, God the Father will prolong his days and he will see with his eyes the offspring of his suffering. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servants, Make many to be counted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. If you've been hanging around the church for a while, I want to use a big phrase here for you. That is the teaching that we call imputed righteousness. What that means is that Christ, the righteous one, died on our behalf, so that when we believe in him now, our sins go upon him. You see that there? He shall bear their iniquities, Our sins go upon him and his righteousness comes upon us so that we now look to God the Father as though we ourselves are righteous and he is pleased to be in a relationship with us. Isaiah is prophesying the most profound things about salvation so many centuries before they happened. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession he prays ever and always for the transgressors i promise you that is one text that jesus christ took his disciples to to say that's what it means to be the christ i have to go to jerusalem i have to suffer i have to be killed but behold, I will be raised again, I will be raised again. They didn't understand, but Christ understood that unless these things came to pass, there was no way to salvation. He is the Son of Man, and He is the Son of God. What does that mean? It means that He was born of Mary, so He is a human being, but His Father was God. Mary was impregnated as a virgin by the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe. So He literally is the Son of Man and the Son of God. He has the nature of humanity in Him. He has the nature of divinity in Him. And so He alone is the one who can come to reconcile God and man. There's nobody else who can do this on the earth or in the history of the earth. Nobody else. Christ comes to reconcile us not as a third party. He doesn't stand between God as though He's separate from us and God. Christ stands between us as God and as man. We are reconciled literally in Christ, in the being of Christ. Reconciliation with God, beloved, is not a contract, it's a person. It is Jesus Christ. And when he shed his blood, he paid the price for our sins, and when he was raised again from the dead, he bought our forgiveness, he bought our justification, the Bible says. And so now all that implies for us is this, we must believe in him And as we believe in Christ, we will be granted eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to God except by me. And this is why he said this. Who else is the God-man? Who else was prophesied so many years and years and years before? Christ alone is our salvation. So the the punch of the message for our lives today is very simple. Next week, we're going to talk, for those of us who believe, we're going to talk about what this means for our lifestyle. But right now, the message is is simple. Let us see who Christ really is. Let us understand what it means that he was the Christ. Let us believe in him. Let us take up our cross and follow him. See, believe, and follow. That's the message for today. Jesus is not just another man. He's not somebody to encounter, and then you walk away, and and you don't have to worry about him anymore. You must make a decision about Jesus. See, believe, and follow. That's my message to you in Christ today. Let's pray. Father, I am so eternally grateful to you for the salvation that you worked in my life. You know, Father, how utterly hopeless I was. Others could see my drug addiction, but only you saw the hopelessness of my heart. And you saved me in 1986. And you have saved my friends like Robert and Mike and Scott and my nephew Clyde and my sister Mickey and others that I've known in my life. You've saved many people who are listening to my voice right now. You've saved many of their friends. You've saved many of their family members. You have done amazing things. Your blood has and is transforming our lives. You are indeed the living Christ, and we stand to testify to that fact. And now I pray, Lord, that you would continue to open our eyes, continue to reveal. Cause unbelievers to believe this day, not only at this church, but across this world. And cause believers to believe all the more, to see all the more, to embrace all the more, to love all the more, to follow all the more passionately. Oh, how we love you, Lord, how we worship you, how we praise you. In your mighty and merciful name we pray. Amen. Amen.